Okay, good evening and welcome to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are currently in part 9 of this 12-part series. This has brought us into the 16th chapter of Acts, a really interesting chapter, and I'm hoping by the grace of God that we can complete chapter 16 tonight. Um, If you're following along in the notes, uh, we've come to the main heading entitled Lydia's Conversion in Philippi. And let me give just a real quick uh, recap and background, and we're going to launch right in tonight. Um, Paul had a vision, and it's commonly referred to as the Macedonian vision, in which he saw a man, we're, we're not told who he was, but he had a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia begging him to come over and help us. And apparently the Holy Spirit bore witness in all of the hearts, not just Paul's, but Timothy and Silas, remember, is with Paul now, and Luke has also joined them on this leg of the journey. They all felt uh, unanimously that this was the Lord, and they immediately uh, started to head toward Macedonia. And they've now arrived in Philippi. And it's interesting when you dig deeper in the book of Acts, and then you go read the epistles that Paul wrote to these different places, Corinth, Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, later on, they, they mean so much more when you have the background of how the gospel was first introduced to each one of these places. So, Philippi is a very interesting part of this second missionary journey. And whether or not Luke deliberately did it or not, obviously all of the events are true, but the way that he tells the story is quite striking because he's going to tell us about three very different people in Philippi in chapter 16 who encountered Christ and their lives were dramatically changed by the power of Christ. The first one we will be looking at is Lydia. She was a, a businesswoman, a worshiper of God, uh, probably a very distinguished lady. Um, the second one is a demon-possessed slave girl, quite different from Lydia. We're not given her name, but she was also greatly impacted by the power of Jesus Christ. And then a third one is a jailkeeper, the jailer in Philippi. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 16, we've sort of gone through the whole gamut of humanity, a wealthy businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a jailkeeper, and yet all three of them have one thing in common. They met Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel transformed their lives, and each one of them became a disciple, a follower of Jesus. All right, let's look at the first one, Lydia. We'll pick it up in Acts 16 from verse 11 to 15. 
From Troas, we, remember this part of the journey, Luke writes in the first person plural, we, indicating that he's with them on this part of the journey. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So, they've come to Philippi, a Roman colony, in what is now modern Greece, in Macedonia, and were introduced to Lydia. But another important detail, remember it was always Paul and the other apostles' custom when they got to a new city to go to the synagogue. There's no mention of them going to the synagogue here in Philippi. Rather, they had heard about a prayer meeting that was taking place outside of the city by the river. And so they head out and find Lydia and this small group of women who had gathered there for prayer. It is assumed, we can't prove it, but it's assumed that there was no synagogue in Philippi, and according to the historical records, there had to be at least ten married Jewish men in a particular town in order for them to open a synagogue. So apparently there were not that many Jews in Philippi to warrant the establishment of a synagogue. So Paul goes out to find this small group of Jews and Jewish converts who were there on the Sabbath um, beside the river having a time of prayer and worship. I say, and converts, because of what is next mentioned here concerning Lydia. It says in verse 14, One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That phrase, worshiper of God, in the first century context, would have indicated she was a convert to Judaism. She's not yet become a believer in Christ, but under the Jewish law, you could become a worshiper of God by converting to Judaism. So, here is this small group of women gathered together outside the city, um, by the river, on the Sabbath, 
Paul meets them, and he begins to speak to them. Something very important for us to glean from this story is mentioned here in verse 14. It says, while Paul was speaking to them, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. I want you to notice the order here. Paul is speaking, the Lord is opening, and she is responding. We talked at length about this back in chapter 13, where we talked about the mysterious working of God in opening the heart of the sinner, granting the sinner faith and repentance to come to Christ. The sinner is not capable of coming to Christ in and of himself or herself. We need the enabling grace of God to even help us to come to Christ in our first steps of repentance and faith. We see that again here in this verse. These scriptures are in the Bible for a reason. We can't just discount them and say, oh well, I don't know what that means, or that doesn't fit in with my theology. No. It says, the Lord opened her heart. And then, and only then, can she respond to Paul's message. Now, not to take anything away from the Apostle Paul, but it doesn't say Paul preached so eloquently and with such emotion that it brought her to repentance. It doesn't say anything about how effective Paul's message was. Matter of fact, it doesn't even say after Paul preached, she said, Wow, what a great discourse, Paul. None of that. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Well, what was her response? Her response was obviously repentance and faith. That's true response to the gospel. The Lord opened her heart, granted her repentance, gave her a measure of faith, and then she responded to the good news that Paul was presenting to them. Those of us listening tonight who want to be used by God to bring other souls to Christ, and I hope that's all of us, we need to learn something very important here. Our clever uh, words and speeches and eloquence and delivery and emotion are not going to get the job done. So you might as well forget about it. Unless the Lord opens that person's heart, everything you're doing is going to be in vain. Now you might plant a seed, you might water a seed, but ultimately when we share the good news, we better have this in the back of our mind. And that's why prayer is so important in effective evangelism. God, Open that person's heart as I go and share the gospel with them. I'm depending on you, Holy Spirit, to work with me here, to grant them repentance, to open their eyes, open their hearts, and draw them to the Savior. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father 
draws him and enables him. We see that very clearly here. The only way, the only reason Lydia came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that day was because God initiated it. God is the author of eternal salvation. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Authors start things. They initiate things. God initiated her salvation experience that day. It says in verse 15, When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Notice, she didn't just say, Wow, that was a great sermon. And, you know, give a little bit of applause and pat Paul on the back. No, 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 no. True response means taking baptism, agreeing to follow Jesus Christ, becoming one of his disciples. We might give a good speech and everybody claps and cheers. If nobody gets baptized, if nobody uh, becomes a disciple of Christ, we still haven't gotten the job done. Real discipleship is to teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, commanding them all that I've told you to do. So, she and her house became believers, they became disciples. And then, the proof of this transformation comes in her plea. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Notice, immediately, she embraces the apostles, Luke, Timothy. She wants all of them to come to her home. And what a marvelous time that was. How her heart was opened. How she responded in faith and obedience. And so, the gospel has started to take effect in Philippi. Interesting that Paul's vision was a, of a man calling him to Macedonia. Uh, that, again, we discussed, could just be representative of the city's need for the gospel. But it's curious, it's interesting, that his first convert was not even a man, it was a woman, Lydia. Alright, we move on to the second phase of this gospel invasion of Philippi. Very, very interesting story. We pick it up in Acts 16, verse 16, down to verse 24. It says, Once when we, notice Luke is still with them, when we were going to the place of prayer, we just read about, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And that moment, 
the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, let's go back to verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune teller. Now, Luke, the historian who's giving this account, is giving us information that wasn't known at the beginning of these events. He's telling us at the beginning of the story, what was only discovered later on, that this slave girl actually had a spirit. She was demon-possessed. And it was a spirit of divination. Uh, We would call it maybe fortune-telling. She was predicting the future and earning a great deal of money for her owners, her masters. They had a big business going. And they were using this girl and the demon that she had to make a lot of money telling people's fortunes. More about that in a minute. It says in the original Greek where it says she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. King James and the New American Standard say she had a spirit of divination. The Greek word is actually puthon. We get the word python, and apparently there was a Greek god, puthon, that was involved in this whole demonic fortune-telling. She had the python spirit, literally, is what it says. So, this poor slave girl is actually twice a slave. Not only is she owned by these uh, masters that are using her and her demonic gift, but she's a slave to a demon. So she really is uh, a slave in more than one way. And, as we just read, she was making a lot of money, not for herself, for her owners. And... You know, I could really get off on this. I'm not going to waste a lot of time, but, you know, this whole nonsense of fortune-telling and and wanting somebody to tell me my future, um, it has slowly even crept into the church. And sometimes there's a fine line between biblical prophecy and the office of a biblical prophet and people just lining up to have their fortunes told. 
Uh, we need to be very, very careful about this. Um, fortune-telling has always brought in a lot of money, and there are some modern fortune-tellers that go around from church to church, raking in a lot of money, and the people line up to have their fortunes told. Beware, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a demon. It's a spirit of divination. Now, let me be very clear here, and I've listed a long laundry list in the notes here. Um, all kinds of activities that are very popular today, they seem harmless, everybody's doing it, they're all demonically inspired. And listen carefully to me, anybody who's on the phone, on the internet, who might listen to this recording later on, any of these activities, if you're involved in, stop them immediately, because you're opening a window or a door to the demonic realm. And I'm going to list a number of things here. Astrology, horoscopes, palm readers, fortune tellers, seances, necromancy, Ouija boards, witchcraft, any kind of magic, black magic, white magic, I don't care if it's orange magic, any kind of magic, tarot cards, divination, crystal gazers, clairvoyance, and any other kind of occult practices apart from seeking God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit always, always, always within the constraints and the confines of God's Holy Word beware. It's demonic. It is demonic. And this story should put a nice, healthy fear of God into all of us. That there are all different shades and sizes and colors of demonic things that Satan has out here to try to trick us, draw us in, thinking it's harmless. These things are not harmless. If we could, we should ask this slave girl whether this demon that had taken possession of her was harmless or not. Alright, back to the story. Here's where it gets really strange and very interesting. Verses 17 and 18. The girl this slave girl with this demon of Python, this divination spirit, the girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Now, pause. What preacher... What missionary, what pastor doesn't want this kind of a following? People coming along saying, These are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. They're telling you the way to be saved. And this went on for many days, Luke said. 
Only one problem. As time went on, Paul was becoming troubled. It says, finally, Paul became so troubled. Why was he troubled? Was he having a bad day? Was he worried about personal affairs? Absolutely not. He was troubled in his spirit because what we're about to see is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. It's called the discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits. Paul was increasingly discerning that even though the words coming out of this girl's mouth were all right, something was wrong. That's how discernment works. Everything looks good. Everything, the words are all right. Everything appears correct. But in the spirit, there's a troubling. There's a disturbing. Something is saying, this is wrong. This isn't right. This isn't the Holy Spirit. This isn't God. And so finally, Paul became so troubled, he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Let me tell you something. There are all kinds of demons. There are unclean spirits. There are blaspheming spirits, cursing spirits, spirits of immorality, and all sorts of demons. I've cast many of them out over the years. But, the strangest ones of all are this kind. They're religious spirits. Religious spirits. They love to quote the Bible. They recognize the servants of God. They like to be around them. She wasn't frightened by Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy. She liked to hang around them. She liked to come and hear what they were saying. She knew what they were saying. They were telling the message of salvation. This was a religious spirit that Paul discerned and cast out. And some of the most bizarre things that I've witnessed over the years fall into this category. Where do you find them? In churches. Where do you find them? Where the gospel is being preached. Where do you find them? Where the Holy Spirit is moving. And you can't recognize them by the seeing of the eye or the hearing of the ear. You need discernment. The discerning of spirits to recognize these things. Going back to Christ... When he was here on earth, we saw this same kind of thing from some of the demons. Look, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. It says, Just then a man in their synagogue. Where was he? In the synagogue. In the temple. In the place of worship. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit. He's in the synagogue. He's come to church. He's come to worship God. And he has an evil spirit in him. The evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Notice, the spirits can recognize the presence of Jesus. The demon in this slave girl could recognize Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke were servants of the Most High God. Back to Mark 1. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Look also in Mark 5, verses 7 and 8. He shouted at the top of his voice, the demon did, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, the demon, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. You know, some years ago I was pastoring in Brooklyn, New York, and another minister that was working with me um, suddenly something very strange began to manifest in this man's life. You're going to find this very weird, and I would too had I not been there to witness this over a period of months. This man had a preaching demon. That's right, you heard me. A preaching demon. It was an uncontrolled, it was a, it was a complete, telling kind of a thing where he had to preach and all of the words the Bible verses that were being quoted were all absolutely correct it was a demon and repeatedly I had to sit this man down and say stop preaching we're going to such and such a place now, we're going to have a prayer meeting, we're going to have a home meeting, do not preach. We would get there, guess what? He would start preaching. Couldn't control it. Went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. We fasted, we prayed, we bound that thing, and finally it stopped. It was a preaching demon. A religious spirit that wanted to be right in the middle of the church, right in the middle of worship, even preaching the Word of God, but it's a demon. These are strange things, my friends. <laughs> we better cry out to God in these last days where there is so much deception, delusion, false prophets, false teachers, false Christs, religious spirits everywhere, spirits of false prophecy. We better have some men and women of God in, in our churches with the gift of the discerning of spirits, who will get troubled in their spirit when everybody else is clapping and cheering and saying, wow, what a great message or what a great prophecy or what a great whatever that was, and come to find out it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was a false spirit. Paul was afraid for the Corinthian church. I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I'm afraid for some of the things I see going on in our modern churches, that the inability of the churches and even their leaders to discern what's really going on. Jesus said, watch out. Wolves are going to come. They're not going to be in wolf clothes. They're going to be in sheep's clothing. 
by their fruits, you will ultimately be able to identify them, but it would be extremely helpful if we could discern them long before that. Pray, cry out to God for this gift in the church, the discerning of spirits. That's what happened to Paul. It didn't happen the first day. It says this went on for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, he turned around and ordered the spirit to leave the girl. Now, praise God, the demon was cast out. Praise one of the signs of believers. These signs will follow them who believe. They will drive out, is the literal translation, they will drive out demons. Paul drove this thing out. And I'll tell you, when I see a demon rearing up its ugly head in the church or in somebody's life, I want to drive it out. And I'm fasting, praying, seeking God that we would have that kind of power and authority in our churches, in our ministries, to drive these things out. Drive out false prophecy. Drive out these deceiving spirits that try to creep in to people's lives. How deceived this slave girl was. She's running around saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. Well, that was all right, but she needed to be saved. She wasn't even saved. She was demon-possessed. And Luke doesn't go into all the details. I would like to assume that after Paul cast the demon out of her, they led her to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and maybe she even took baptism. We don't know what happened to her. Because we pick up the story in verse 19, trouble arises. Whenever you hit somebody in the pocketbook, oh boy, look out. This affected the money-making of this slave girl's master's. Remember, her owners were making a lot of money off of this demon. Now, Paul has cast out the demon, and that's not good for them. Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money, listen to the words, their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. What's the root of all evil? It's not money. It's the love of it. The love of money can drive a human being to do anything. Commit murder. Uh, you name it. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's, it has a blinding effect. It can cause people to do very, very strange and bizarre things. Here, Paul has helped this poor girl to get free from demon possession. But what does it do? It stirs up anger, hatred, and revenge. This reminds me of a story in the Gospels, the Gadarene demoniac. 
out of whom Jesus drove a legion of demons, sent them into a herd of 2,000 pigs, and rather than the townspeople rejoicing that this poor demon-possessed man had been set free by the power of God, they were angry. Why? Because they lost all their pigs. They lost all their bacon. They lost their income. It hit them in the purse, in the pocketbook. And so, even though a miracle has taken place, the miracle has once again gotten Paul and Silas into big trouble. Without any trial, in verses 20-24, Paul and Silas were literally lynched, stripped, beaten, and flogged before being thrown into prison and their feet fastened in the stocks. This was a real lynching. They had no trial, no justice whatsoever. They were literally just grabbed, beaten, thrown into prison. Now, let me pause again for something very important here. We talked a little bit about this last week, different ways that God guided these apostles, and a host of different ways that God will guide you and me. Sometimes he gives us dreams and visions. That's the exception to the rule. He often uses circumstances, other people. He speaks to us through the Word. The Holy Spirit can prompt us. There are a variety of ways that God can guide us. But when you have a supernatural sort of a guidance, like that which Paul received here, a vision in the night, a man from Macedonia calling you to come over and help us. Wow, this is going to be great. We're going to see signs and wonders and miracles every step of the way because we've had confirmation. All the others in the mission group felt this was the Holy Spirit and they immediately launched for Macedonia. Very often, God will supernaturally guide. He'll give confirmations. He'll supernaturally open doors. He'll confirm it with signs and wonders and, and you know, what we usually call confirmations. And after a number of confirmations, we have this great assurance that we're on the right track. We're in God's timing. Let's go! The Lord says, go to Macedonia, let's go. And they go, and man, they hit the river shore there, and Lydia and her whole house receive Christ. They get baptized, uh, a revival breaks out. Then they cast demons out of this slave girl, and the power of God is operating. But then they're stripped, lynched, flogged, put into prison, and they're in the stocks. Up until this point, everything's been going smoothly. And this Macedonian vision, everything is just panning out so beautifully. And now that this poor slave girl has been set free, what a great miracle this was. Everything seems to be falling right into place. And here's where we often go wrong. That doesn't mean we're not going to have trouble. 
That doesn't mean the enemy isn't going to rear up his seven ugly heads and come after us with a vengeance. That's a confirmation too. Sometimes the strongest confirmation that you and I are in the will of God is when we're being attacked from all sides by the enemy. Hallelujah. Praise God. Paul is sitting in the jail with his hands and feet in the stocks, and I'm sure all the demons in hell were there whispering in his ear. Uh huh. What about that vision, Paul? What about that Macedonian vision? You want to rewind the tape and rethink this now that you're here in prison, beaten, and locked up like a criminal? I don't think Paul had any second thoughts. And I'll tell you why. The third part of our story. Now we've seen Lydia. We've seen a slave girl supernaturally delivered by the power of Christ. Now we come to the Philippian jailer. So many sermons have been preached on this. I'm sure you've heard a few. But let's read it. Luke 16, 25-40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Pause for a minute. We don't know where Luke is. He's writing this uh, as a witness, whether or not he was a first-hand witness or not, is doubtful. We don't know. But all it says is Paul and Silas were the ones in the stocks. Paul and Silas were the ones praying and singing at midnight. <clears throat> Let's take it again. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Hallelujah. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Let me tell you something. Things can happen suddenly when you're in the will of God. Situations can change very suddenly when you're walking with the Lord. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. I don't think Paul and Silas were praying for an earthquake. I don't know what they were praying for. I don't think they were expecting this. They were just praying to God, singing hymns, having a good time with the presence of the Lord. Suddenly, an earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Now, earthquakes don't open doors. Earthquakes might break a door or two. Earthquakes shake things. Earthquakes don't normally open prison doors. This is a supernatural earthquake. Something supernatural is going on here. Every single prison door at once has opened. They all flew open. And it gets better. Earthquakes don't normally unlock chains. Not only did the prison doors fly open, everybody's chains came loose. Huh. There's something really strange going on here. This isn't your ordinary garden variety earthquake. 
Chains are being broken. Doors are opening. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. If you were a jailer or a soldier in charge of prisoners, and one of those prisoners escaped, it meant your life. Now, it was brutal. Under the Roman system, they would die if even one of these prisoners escaped. And so when the jailer sees that all the doors have been opened, all the chains have been broken, and all these prisoners are about to run loose, he knows he's a dead man. So he might as well kill himself before he's put to death. But Paul shouts, Don't harm yourself. We, meaning all the prisoners, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Wait a minute. He's the jailer. He's the one with the keys, with the power, with the authority. He's the one who locked them up and tells them what to do. Suddenly, the tables have turned. He's on the ground before Paul and Silas, trembling. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Hmm. He knew these guys were talking about salvation. He must have heard something of what they were saying, something of what they were singing or praying. Somehow he knew what they were about. Let me tell you something. When you walk with Christ and you're regularly announcing the good news to people around you, people know where to go when they're in trouble. They know to whom to come with a, with a question like this, how do I get saved? What do I have to do to get saved? They replied, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. We've noted this repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. I want to bring it out again here. Notice the simplicity of their message. This wasn't the time to give a 12-point, you know, 40-scripture Bible study on the intricacies of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They gave him a little more information. And all the others in his house, and at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Notice some of the similarities between the jailer and Lydia. His heart was obviously opened. He believed the word of the Lord. 
he immediately is saved. How do we know that? He and his whole house take water baptism. They didn't wait for the next, you know, time they rented a pool and had a church baptism. They were baptized immediately. <clears throat> this wasn't done as some kind of an open confession before the rest of the church members. They took baptism immediately, signifying they had become disciples of Jesus Christ. Lydia and her house had become disciples. This is effective evangelism. And it's great to share a word with somebody on the metro, or hand them a tract, or pray a little prayer with them. Those are all seeds that might eventually get watered and lead a person to salvation. But make no mistake, real evangelism is getting a disciple. A disciple is one who's ready and willing to take water baptism and follow Jesus Christ. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release these men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. You know, this Paul was a real character. He was a real character. Next verse. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. So, the ministry in Philippi continues to grow, continues to be more and more miraculous, more and more exciting. After getting beaten, thrown into prison without a trial, God shakes the whole foundation of the prison, unlocks every prisoner. God uses that to bring the jailer to salvation. Right there in the middle of the night, he and his whole house receive Christ, take water baptism. They invite Paul and the others to stay with them, gives them a meal to eat, and then, finally, they're officially escorted out by the Roman magistrates. As I already mentioned, uh, if you read this over carefully, this was no ordinary earthquake. This was a supernatural event. God shook the prison, opened the doors, unlocked the chains on each prisoner's arms and legs, and they were all set free. God did all of this just to save this jailer and his family. Can't prove it, but many believe that this was the man that Paul saw in his vision. 
Don't know. Again, that man may have just been a nondescript representative of the city. Be that as it may, God knew that Macedonia was ripe for the gospel. There were people there whose hearts God had prepared and opened, and they were like ripe fruit on the tree, ready to be plucked. Lydia, the slave girl, and this jailer. He asked one simple question. What must I do to be saved? On the day of Pentecost, they had come to Peter saying, what do we need to do? We've heard your preaching now. We, we've been cut to the heart. What do we need to do? You see, the gospel isn't just some mental uh, thing where I now believe in my mind. I just heard the sermon and I believe it in my mind. No. The gospel demands action. The gospel demands tangible fruits of repentance. Proof that we have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And if there's no fruit, if there's no proof, then real salvation has obviously not yet taken place. If we're not asking the question, what do I need to do now? My life needs to change. What must I do? Well, just like Peter on the day of Pentecost, Paul already had his answer ready. Very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, and your household. We often quote that verse, and I think very uh, correctly from a biblical point of view, salvation is for the whole house. And I believe Paul had that confidence because of his knowledge of the Old Covenant. He knew that under the Old Covenant, the Passover lamb was for the whole house. And he would later write to the Corinthians, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's for the entire house. We saw that with Lydia. Lydia believed in what Paul was preaching, but it didn't stop there. All the members of her household were saved and baptized. The jailer believed, but it didn't stop there. He and his whole house heard the word of the Lord, responded in faith, and they all took baptism. They all became disciples of Christ. The salvation of Jesus Christ is not for you and you alone. It's for your house. It's for your family. And you may not see it yet. You may have some renegade children, some some rebellious sons or daughters that are, aren't really walking right with the Lord. That's okay. Leave it up to the Lord. In His time, He will bring them to their senses and grant them repentance. That is our hope. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, go ahead and claim it. It's for you and your household. How simple 
What do I need to do? Believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved, and your whole house. As I mentioned, they were baptized in the middle of the night. They just had an earthquake. This isn't the best time to schedule a water baptism in the church. But here again, a lot of the traditions that the modern church has inherited are not biblical. You don't find them in the book of Acts. You don't see these glamorous water baptismal ceremonies where pictures and movies are being taken and each one, you know, gives a public testimony of their faith in Christ. That's all good and well. I'm I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's not necessary. Philip baptized the Ethiopian out in the middle of the desert. There was nobody else around to witness what he was doing. Lydia and her household were baptized right there in the river. I don't know who else was watching. They didn't care. She wanted to be a disciple. She was doing this for Jesus Christ, not for anyone else. This jailer and his house, they're also baptized in the middle of the night. It wasn't a church ceremony. It was a part of their discipleship. And the jailer... After all this calamity, his whole prison has been broken apart. All the prisoners have been set free. It was a terrible night for him. However, after he believes in Jesus, and after he and his house have all taken baptism, I'm going to read verse 34 again. The jailer brought them, meaning the apostles, and their mission team, brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Filled with joy. The Greek literally means he leaped much for joy. This guy was jumping around, dancing in the middle of the night. He was so happy. He and his family had found joy in salvation through Jesus Christ. That was the ultimate proof of the genuineness of his conversion. This guy really got saved. And what a miraculous set of circumstances God set up just for this one man and his family to get saved. We've pointed this out before, and I want you to meditate on this. God will move heaven and earth to save one person. He'll send Philip away from the revival out in the middle of the desert to get one man saved. He'll send you out into the middle of nowhere to meet a random stranger to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And you never know what God plans to do through that one individual. We're not told anything more about this Philippian jailer. Um, we're not really told too much more about the other two individuals. And as I started off tonight, I want to close with this thought. Three very different individuals, all of whom were in Philippi. Paul meets because of this vision of a man telling him to come over and help them. These three people were definitely helped. Lydia and her household, the slave girl, and the jailer. 
three very different kinds of people. Lydia, probably a very well-dressed, well-educated, distinguished, God-fearing businesswoman, probably with, you know, very, very high moral standards, reputable character. Secondly, a slave girl, demon-possessed. And then a jailer. What a job to be in charge of the jail and the prisoners. But you know what? It shows me that Christ is for the world. Jesus Christ can reach anyone. Doesn't matter what their background, what their lifestyle, what their history is. Anyone who believes can be saved. Whether or not Luke was trying to emphasize that or not, I cannot say. But if you read Acts 16 straight through, I think it will impact you that uh, in this brief visit to Philippi, these three very different people were all impacted by the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same salvation. Let's close in prayer for tonight. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for these marvelous stories that teach us so much about the way your Holy Spirit operates to bring people to saving faith, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it cuts across all different cultures and characters and types of people Because really, Lord, we're not that different. We're all sinners, and we all have the same need. We need forgiveness of sin. We need a new heart, a new mind. We need to become new creations. We need to be born again. And Lord, whether it's uh, a distinguished businesswoman like Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl, or a jailer, Jesus You were what they needed. You met them in their moment of need. And all of them were saved and responded in the same way by taking baptism and becoming true disciples of Jesus Christ. God, I pray in these last days you can use us effectively, not just to talk, not just to go around and... uh, plant seeds and water, as important as that is. We want to see disciples, real disciples coming forth, sinners converted dramatically, choosing to follow Christ, obeying Him in the waters of baptism, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and beginning that life of discipleship, of following the Lamb wherever He goes. God, we commit ourselves into Your care. We pray that these words that we've studied and learned tonight would be written upon our hearts. And Lord, you would continue to teach us by your Holy Spirit how to be used effectively by you in discipleship, in evangelism, in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time we've had together, Lord. Bless each one. Keep them as the apple of your eye, until Jesus returns.